But abortion is still legal and thriving in too much of America. Roe is done. But even so, in the cold and the snow, you have continued to travel from around the nation to this place to recognize that the fight for life is not over. God's word challenges us in the book of Micah to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly before our God. I believe that this is the essence of what it means to be with every woman and for every child. With uncommon courage, we must do justice, not only by protecting innocent preborn life, but by correcting injustice and rebuilding opportunities so that mothers and fathers can flourish. With deep compassion, we must love kindness by offering a continuum of care that provides lasting resources and support. Unless we think we can continue this work in our own power, may we always realize that our wisdom and our strength is found by humbly seeking God's direction for the path ahead. Emotion runs really high in mountaintop gatherings like these, but the battle is won in the valley. Men, in a country where too many of our marriages are crumbling, go back to your homes and fight for your families. <laughs> Civic leaders, in the current climate of compromise, go back to your committees and your communities and legislate for life and for justice. All of you frontline workers, in pregnancy resource centers around the country and other life-affirming organizations. Go back to your post knowing that every encounter is not simply about saving one child, but you are saving generations. And all you young people, with all of your, with all of your energy and all of your ingenuity, go back to your schools and go back to your teams and your churches be leaders that are unashamed to stand for life. Friends, friends, keep pressing on, keep pressing on, keep pressing on until abortion is not only unthinkable, but for so many who think that it's necessary, it will no longer be necessary. Friends, keep, keep, keep pressing on. God bless you. Country and world changed on June 24th. With the overturn of Roe and the Dobbs decision, the states are all the more important. After the Dobbs decision, abortion policy is returned to the elected representatives of the people. And so being here in state capitals to stand up for life is more important than it's ever been before. We are absolutely thrilled to welcome you here to the third annual California March for Life. We are here today to be a voice for the voiceless in Michigan, here in Lansing. This year marks the third annual Pennsylvania March for Life. We are marching for the life and dignity of both the mother and the child. And that is why we march. Seven out of 10 women who get abortions are coerced into abortion. 
it can be easy to fall into despair and hopelessness just given the legislation and the laws that we're up against. It's important to speak truth, to go out there, to be that voice, to be that hope, to be that light in the darkness. And while the march began as a response to Roe, we don't end as a response to Roe being overturned. Why? Because we're not yet done. The main goal here is abortion becomes unthinkable. As you can see from that video, 2023 was an amazing year for the State March program. We marched for life in eight capitals across the country, and we're gonna double that in 2024. It is incredibly inspiring seeing thousands of marchers come together for both mom and baby from Connecticut, my home state, to Michigan, all the way to California, just to name a few. You see now standing behind me are the heroes of the movement, pro-life leaders from across the nation who work each and every day to build a culture of life in their communities. The names of these organizations and the leaders that represent them are now on the jumbotron right next to me. Each organization, they represent and meet a different need within the pro-life movement. They are made up of pregnancy resource centers, advocacy groups, doctors. A few of my state march partners are behind me. And many, many more incredible missions within the pro-life movement. With over 62 million Americans lost to abortion and millions of women and families wounded, the work for all of us is not over. We now honor each and every one of you here on stage with me for your life-saving missions and invaluable work. We are better, stronger, and unified together in this fight. Thank you for the work you do day in and day out to make abortion unthinkable. Let's hear your hand for our leaders. All right, now comes the fun part. Before we start to march, I have a few administrative announcements. First, if you have any trash, please drop it in the dumpster here on the mall. Please do not throw your trash on the ground. Second, you can probably see that coordinating the March for Life requires lots of resources, especially on a snowy day like today. And as we grow and grow into the state marches, there are more resources that are needed. And to that end, we would be most grateful if you would consider making a financial gift to the March for Life today. If you take a look up on the screen to my left, you can do that right now by texting the word GIVE, that's G-I-V-E, to the number 73075. If you're here in person, you will also have several opportunities along the march route to provide donations that help us to keep fighting to make abortion unthinkable. You can do this by dropping cash and change in the buckets being carried by our marshals in the white jackets. Please know how grateful we are for your support. As many of you know, starting last year, we marched a new route. 
we went in front of Congress to mark the post-Roe era. Since the power to protect the unborn returned to elected officials. At the end of today's march, please consider visiting your members of Congress and ask them to support life-affirming policies for both mom and baby. Finally, to make sure you are able to safely participate in the march today, following our closing prayer in just a few minutes, please follow the guidance of our marshals who will direct you in the, in the direction of the march. They're here to keep you safe today. There's a lot of you here today, so please, please listen to them. Now to lead us in our closing prayer before we go and march for life. Please join me in welcoming two very special guests. You might recognize them from the movie Jesus Revolution. Please help me welcome Pastor Greg Laurie and Kathy Laurie who inspired the movie Jesus Revolution. Hello, everybody. It's great to be here with you. This is my wife, Kathy. This year, we're celebrating 50 years of marriage, so we're very thankful. <laughs> I'm so proud of all of you coming out on this very cold, snowy day in our nation's capital to speak for those who have no voice. And this is personal to me because my mother was a beautiful woman. Otherwise, why would I be so handsome? And that was not a joke, by the way. That offended me when you laughed. No, I'm kidding. It was a joke. So my mother was married and divorced seven times, and she had a fling with some guy in Long Beach, and I was conceived. I was not planned. Thankfully, my mother carried me to term, and I was born, but it sent me on a search very early in life. And I was wondering, what is the meaning of my life? You know, why do I have this big hole inside? I never had a father growing up. And one day on my high school campus, I came across a group of people that we called the Jesus Freaks. That was not meant as a compliment. But they interested me. Why would these people have a smile on their face? Why would they have a spring in their step? Why would they have this joy in their life? I had experimented with drugs and drinking and other things. And I thought they seemed to have something. And a young man got up and spoke. And he gave the message of the gospel. And what is the gospel? The gospel means good news. It's a simple message that we're all separated from God by our sin. But God loved us so much that 2,000 years ago, he sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross for our sin. And then he rose again from the dead. And if we will turn from our sin and invite Christ into our life, we can know with certainty that we have eternal life. Right? And I know, I know that many of you here are people of faith. I've seen your signs coming in. I've seen you praying. But I wanted to just pray with you for a moment, just in case there's someone with an earshot, someone here that is not certain that if this were their last day on earth that they would go to heaven. Because we don't just care about being born. That's very important to us. But we want you, as Jesus said, to be born again and have eternal life. And if you're not sure if your sin is forgiven, if you're not sure if Christ is living in your heart, if you're not sure that you'll go to heaven when you die, I'd like to lead you in a prayer. A prayer very similar to the prayer I prayed, well, 
70, well, not 51 years ago. And that's when my life changed. And I'm going to ask you, if you want Christ to come into your life, to pray this prayer out loud after me. In fact, to support those that are praying it for the first time, why don't we all pray this prayer together? It's a prayer of asking Jesus to come into our lives and be our Savior and Lord. Let's pray. Pray this after me. Lord Jesus, I know that I'm a sinner, but I know that you're the Savior who died on the cross for my sin and rose again from the dead. Jesus, come into my life. I choose to follow you from this moment forward. In Jesus' name I pray. Let me pray for you now. Lord, thank you for every man and woman, every boy and girl here today. Many came from a great distance to our nation's capital to speak up for the unborn. We pray for our nation. We pray for young women who find themselves pregnant that they would carry these babies to term and raise them up or put them up for adoption. We pray that we as believers, the church, would be there to support these mothers. We pray that you would raise up godly people in our government, in the Congress, in the Senate, in the White House, yes. as well as local government officials who would stand for the unborn. You tell us in your word when the righteous rule, the people rejoice. Lord, we pray for a great spiritual awakening yes. to sweep the United States of America. We need another revival. And now as we prepare to march for the unborn, bless us. And we remember the prayer that Jesus gave us 2,000 years ago. And we pray it together now. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. God bless you. God bless America, land that I love. Stand beside her and guide her through the night with a light from above. From the mountains, to the prairies, to the oceans, wide with foam. God bless America, my home sweet home. God bless America, my
welcome back to EWTN's live coverage of the 2024 March for Life in Washington, D.C. I'm Prudence Robertson. And I'm Tracy Sable. The rally featuring some just incredible speakers. Well, just wrapped up, as you saw them all. And now they are starting to march. That's right. And we've got team coverage of this massive event, coverage from this issue with all angles, with reports from Mark Irons, Catherine Hedro, Teresa Tomio, all of them are in the thick of it all. Rosal Regis and Capitol Hill correspondent Eric Rosales are also out in the field. And right now, EWTN News contributor Teresa Tomio is on the ground at the March for Life. Teresa, how's it going out there? It's going uh, quite well, as a matter of fact. We've moved out from the rally, and we're at 7th and Constitution. Now, the street to the right of me looks a little bit empty right now, but, of course, the rally, as you know, from our coverage is just ending, and people are starting to gather. They're just coming from the rally, and the mood here is really happy. Behind me are some, you can't see them, but I've been warming up, dancing with some young college students here who are all excited about the sweet TV. There they are from the East Coast. And a very, very wonderful group of people. The theme again for this year's march is with every woman, for every child. And I can tell you that talking to some of the people here today as we were walking along the way, thanking us for our coverage, and they're very excited to be here despite the weather. Some of them have come a long way, just met a man from all the way from South Carolina, other people from Florida. So it's a very uh, enthusiastic and even larger crowd than what was over at the rally. Everybody's starting to move over. So back to you in the studio, but things are getting busy here at 7th and Constitution, <laughs> waiting for Penn State University. And the banner. My husband is a Nittany Lion, by the way, so go Lions. Yeah. Therese, I am too. That's right. That's my alma mater. Go Lions. <laughs> really? Thank you we so are. much. Awesome. Go Lions. <laughs> we are Penn State. Yep. There you go. Thanks, Teresa. And now we're going to go once again to EWTN News Nightly Capitol Hill correspondent, Eric Rosales. Hey, Eric. How's it going? Hey, how you doing out there? Yeah, I tell you what, it is absolutely fabulous out here. Rain, sleet, or snow, nothing's going to stop these people from showing their support for the unborn and for the pregnant mothers out there. And, uh, it, it, you know, what's interesting about this uh, about this year is that Speaker Mike Johnson actually came down and, and, and spoke and talked a little bit about how young this country is and how it was brought up on Judeo-Christian beliefs. And those beliefs include the right to life. And I actually spoke with Speaker Johnson just before he went down to the rally at the start of the rally and uh, I, I spent about a 10-minute conversation with him. I'm going to have more on that on EWTN News Nightly on Monday at uh, 6 and 9 o'clock so our viewers definitely want to tune in for that one but um, also along with him you had um, a variety of other lawmakers many of them uh, Congressman Chris Smith of New Jersey a, a staunch uh, uh, a fighter for the unborn but not only religious liberties as well religious uh, uh, beliefs, not only here in the United States, but throughout the world, he fights for these uh, fights for these things, and 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 the release of uh, a bishop out of Nicaragua that just happened, and uh, Bishop Alvarez, and that is definitely a good thing. But we we have a great vantage point up here. We're actually at the corner of Independence and New Jersey, and you're going to be able to see. You can see police are already starting to kind of clear the roadway as the marchers are going to be making their way up to Capitol Hill. But this is just a great vantage point that we're going to be able to bring you from the comfort of your home. You're going to be able to see the marchers and uh, cheer with them as they walk by the U.S. Capitol. Back to you in the studio. All right. Thank you so much, Eric. At EWTN News, Catherine Hadro is standing outside the Supreme Court where the legal battle to protect life continues. Catherine. 
Hello, yes I am, and I will say the snow is relentless right now. Just to put it into perspective, there was a snow plower right behind me on the steps of the Supreme Court plowing away the snow, um, but we are here at the Supreme Court. Now, traditionally, this is where the march ends. However, this year, they're going to end between the Supreme Court and Capitol Hill. I will say very anecdotally, fewer people at this stage of the march than I've noticed in years past when I've come, but more and more pro-lifers are starting to trickle in, including my friend Gia Chacon, Gia is founding president of For the Martyrs. You traveled all the way from California to be here for the March for Life, Gia. Yes, I did. And as a California girl, I am suffering in this snow, to be perfectly honest. But there is nothing more important than the fight for life and to protect human dignity. So rain, shine, snow, no matter what, I was going to be here. You know, it's last year was the March for Life following the Dobbs decision. This year, you know, a lot of people were wondering what is the crowd size going to be? How is the snow going to impact that? What has been your sense today at the March for Life that you've been in D.C.? What's the energy been like? You know, there's a lot of work still to be done. And the energy is that uh, the fight's not over. It's just beginning. And um, we won't stop until every human life is defended and protected from the moment of conception until the moment of natural death. You know, this week, I believe it was on Thursday, began the week for Christian unity. I think we see so much of that Christian unity here at the March for Life. You see Catholics and Protestants and evangelicals, people of all different faiths actually really coming together for the March for Life. But you are a huge proponent for Christian unity. Can you speak to that and that connection here at the March for Life? Absolutely. So I'm the founder of For the Martyrs. We're a nonprofit organization that advocates for uh, Christians who are being persecuted for their faith. And one of the things that we do is we host an annual March for the Martyrs in Washington, D.C. And we see Christians of all denominations come together as one voice for the persecuted church. And truthfully, it was actually inspired by my years of coming to the March for Life and seeing what an amazing, incredible impact that Christians of all denominations coming together as one voice to defend human life can do. And I thought if we can do that to protect the unborn, we must be doing that for our brothers and sisters around the world. Absolutely. It's a powerful witness and important work. Gia, thanks for speaking with me and stay warm. Thanks. All right, I'm sending it back to you in the studio. Thanks so much, Catherine. Wonderful chat with Gia there. What an inspiring young woman. Now, being pro-life is quintessential to our Catholic faith. The Catechism says that since the first century, the church leaders have taught that every abortion is morally evil. And of course, our Holy Father is called to lead us in the fight for life. And we're joined now by a couple of guests who can speak with us about yeah, that. Yeah, our fabulous guests. We are joined by Dr. Matthew Bunsen, who is our editorial director here at EWTN News, and Father John Paul of the Franciscan Missionaries of the Eternal Word. Thank you both so much for being here. Yes. Great. A blessing. Thanks. Thanks for joining us. Here. Matthew, uh, Father, the Pope just recently spoke out very definitively against surrogacy. Let's take a listen to what he had to say. Yeah. The path to peace calls for respect for life, for every human life, starting with the life of the unborn child in the mother's womb, which cannot be suppressed or turned into an object of trafficking. In this regard, I deem deplorable the practice of so-called surrogate motherhood, which represents a grave violation of the dignity of the woman and the child. Matthew, your reaction first to the Holy Father's words. Yeah, well, here we are at the March for Life, and what's the motto for this year? I think it's with every woman for every child. That's right. In that little clip that we heard from Pope Francis, he touches on both. 
And the significance, I think, of this particular clip is that the context of when he was speaking, too, about surrogacy. Mm. He was talking to the world's ambassadors, and the Holy See has relations with about 184 countries, warning them in this long list of his grave concerns for the modern world, surrogacy was one of the highest. Mm. He's not just concerned about the fact that you're commodifying a child, but you're also commodifying women. And then you're bringing all of this into the, the greater uh, terrible plague of human trafficking. Right. So it's the objectification of the person, it's the loss of personhood, yeah. but it's also that two people are suffering in this, both the mother and the child. Absolutely. And a disconnect be between mother and child. That's and right. The child in the womb and, and the mother. Right. And then that you would have those who would be purchasing a child, essentially, uh, for commercial purposes. It goes back to, to this whole idea of Pope Francis of the disposability of the human person in the modern world, mm. part of his wider pro-life uh, agenda. Yeah. Mm. And it's important to talk about because that is, it seems to be on the rise here in the United States and around the world as well. It is. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's a global enterprise now. And, and Pope Francis is speaking to ambassadors from around the world, mm. warning them, because many of them come from countries, certainly in the West, uh, who are going to these other developing countries and purchasing children or engaging within their own developed countries in this, what is an increasingly profitable trade. And Pope Francis is warning us about that. Yeah, another thing he mentioned, uh, he said abortion is like hiring a hitman. Let's take a listen to this. Is it right to hire a hitman to solve a problem? It is not. The faithful take a stand for the unborn. The unborn. This is the March for Life on EWTN Radio and Television. Certainly words that he said over and over again throughout his pontificate. He hasn't just said them once, but multiple times, right. multiple occasions, and they are stark words. Uh, Tracy, you said that there should be a, you know, a connection. You mentioned we're, like there is a disconnection between, you know, child and mother, but we're made for connection. We're made for communion. You know, a child is not meant to be uh, uh, solved, um, but uh, a problem to be solved, but a child is a person to be loved, a person to be nourished, a person to be cared for and welcome in all circumstances. Yeah. Absolutely. Matthew, tell us a little bit more about Pope Francis's legacy as a whole when it comes to speaking out in the defense of life throughout his pontificate. Yeah, there, there was a, a brief time when some people were claiming that Pope Francis has somehow demoted uh, abortion as what the USCCB, that U.S. bishops call the preeminent issue of our time. Mm -hmm. When you look at uh, the numerous occasions that Pope Francis has talked about uh, abortion and mm -hmm. condemned it, and he's spoken about the inviolable dignity of the unborn, the dignity of the human person from conception to natural death. But he's also spoken uh, about the risks to the family uh, that we're seeing in the West in particular. Mm. Uh, one of his most recurring themes is uh, the importation or exportation of what he calls ideological colonialism. And at the heart of so much of that is the forcing of abortion and a contraceptive mentality on places like Africa and Asia, where you have developing countries, where they're attaching aid and development to the embrace of what John Paul II called the culture of death. Sure. So for Pope Francis, uh, it's very clear that uh, the, the risks to the human person, the unborn, are at a greater level today than at any other time that we have seen mm. because of the internationalization. We were just talking about surrogacy. Yes. Attaching surrogacy also to the plague of abortion. Mm. Go ahead. 
No. Oh. <laughs> Our coverage of the March for Life, live from Washington, D.C., continues on EWTN Radio and Television. And that when you look at the generations, uh, he wants bridges to be built between those generations mm. of the old and the young, the respect all the way, for, again, from conception to natural death. Mm. So he's singling out abortion in particular and using some of the strongest language that we've ever heard a pope actually use, uh, hiring a hitman, white glove murder, equating it as rightly so with the eugenics programs of the Nazis. But he's also stressing the importance of the dignity of the human person throughout the whole of life. Mm -hmm. That's why he's so opposed to things like euthanasia, uh, experimentation, cloning, right. and of course surrogacy. Right. Yeah. Well, Matthew and Father, thank you so much for your thoughts sure. on this and for joining us in the studio. I think we'll see you a little bit later. Yeah, important conversation. Right. Great Thanks. to be with you. Thanks. Thanks. All right, we're going to check back in with now Teresa, who is out there in the field for us. Teresa. Hey, we are still at 7 in Constitution, keeping a close eye on things uh, for you back in the studio and back in our audience there, everyone watching, waiting for the banner from Penn State University pro-life students who will be leading the march. They're not here yet, but we are here with Brandy from a wonderful foundation, the Vitae Foundation. Brandy, this is really important for you to be here, but let's talk about what you're doing this year that might be different than past years. Sure. So we recognize the sense of the urgency that we're all feeling right now with the abortion pill specifically. So we've been working really hard to try to create strategies on how to overcome the messaging that the other side is using and still be able to protect women and babies because we're here to save all the babies, but we're also here to save all the women yeah. as well. And, and the whole thing we were talking about getting ready for our interview is there's there's a different type of ministry that's being developed because of these abortion pills. You don't call them medications because they're not, where women are seeing now that their homes are the abortion facilities. And so there's a whole other level of trauma where we need to be. That's right. I mean, it's sad. It's awful. The, basically, the pharmacies are, are mailboxes, right? That's where, they're, that's where they're picking this up. They're keeping it on hand. That's the messaging that's being delivered to them by the other side. It's like, hey, keep it just in case you might need it. And so we have a responsibility to get ahead of that. And part of that's culture changing, and that's what we focus on at Vitae Foundation. But additionally, it's the research on how to create messaging strategies so that women know about a couple things. First of all, there's abortion pill reversal. There are options available if they change their mind and we need to get that information in front of them. But additionally, we need to help them understand what the abortion pill does clearly so that they can make a, a responsible about this and understand um, that this is wrong, right? And it ends a human life. We also want to reach them with healing sooner because when we can do that, we cannot just save a woman from 20, 30 years of this heartache before she achieves the healing that is available to her, but also will save additional babies as well. She's less likely to have an additional abortion. The messaging is so huge and we're so glad you're out there doing that because we have to regain the culture. Thank you, Brandy. Thank you so and we are, uh, let's turn the camera around of you guys because here comes the banner, the March for Life banner coming up. The street with the beautiful Penn State flags there. It's turning ever so slowly on 7th, heading toward Constitution for the official start of the March for Life. Back to the studio, what a beautiful sight to see in the snow with these red, white, blue and white banners from Penn State, but the big March for Life sign as well. We'll toss it back to you. We what a great moment. Absolutely, Teresa. Thank you so much for bringing that to us. And we're joined now 
in the studio by abortion survivor Melissa Odin, and we're excited to welcome her back here, and you have a new book. I do. We can't wait to talk about that. But before we do that, for those who may not know your story, could you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, the reality is babies survive abortions. So babies survived before Roe, many of us survived during Roe, and babies are still surviving after Roe. And I am one of those babies who survived a failed abortion. So I was poisoned and scalded over a five-day period from a saline infusion abortion, mm -hmm. should have been delivered dead, the result of what the abortion industry would be a successful abortion. And, uh, you know, here I was accidentally born alive. And so days like today are such a reminder of the miracle of every life. Um, but it's the reminder of why we keep marching as well. Absolutely. And, and there it is on your sweatshirt. That's right. Miracles happen. So miracle. Yes. yes, indeed. And there are so many other miracles just like you, Melissa. And you talk about them in your book. Congratulations on that, by the way. Your book's called Abortion Survivors Break Their Silence. Sounds very powerful. Tell us about it. It's a first ever book sharing the stories of 10 other abortion survivors, including through the voices of a couple of women mm -hmm. who we have never heard from in the pro-life movement. Yeah. Uh, a dear friend, Rebecca Hagen, shares her story of reversing her abortion, but we also share the story of a mom who stopped her late-term abortion and is raising her daughter, who is now about 12. Wow. And so these are these hidden stories. And what I want people to really take away from it is breaking our silence. Not everybody grabs a microphone, but breaking our silence is telling our story even to one person yeah. so that it is outside of ourselves and it brings healing. It helps you find your voice and it ultimately brings healing not to just one life, but ultimately to families and our culture. And that's what I really hope happens. That's so important because people don't realize how much just one abortion can wound not just that mother, but that family mm -hmm. and the lives of every person that she touches. Yeah, what was it like for you, Melissa, to, to write this book, to talk to these women and hear these stories? Every day changes my life, whether it's writing this book or this morning I spoke at a youth event and I met a teen survivor. Wow. Never had met wow. her before, right? Amazing. It's those everyday moments. So for me, it is um, just such a, just one of those things that is holy for me to be trusted with people's stories. Mm. Yeah, that's beautiful. Um, Melissa, where can people buy your book and learn more about it? People can, of course, visit our website, abortionsurvivors.org, come face to face with some of these powerful stories, the women and the babies who are impacted by these failed, stopped, and reversed abortions. Go to Amazon, go to Tyndale, or focus on the family, and, you know, how do they say that wherever books are sold? <laughs> we love it. Melissa, thank you. Thank you for joining us. Happy March for Life Day. We're glad you could sit down with us. Thank you. Thank you so much. And now we're going to head out to Catherine Hadro at the Supreme Court. Catherine, how's it going out there? It's going well. Again, more and more marchers are making their way here. There's beautiful Christian singing behind me. And it's here at the Supreme Court um, that, again, traditionally has been where the March for Life route has ended this year. They'll end between Capitol Hill and the U.S. Supreme Court. But the Supreme Court, because it was here in 1973 that Roe v. Wade was decided, and here again in 2022 where Dobbs reversed Roe. But this spring, the Supreme Court will see another major abortion case, this time about chemical abortion drugs. In what is the first high-stakes Supreme Court abortion case since Roe v. Wade was overturned? The high court will consider whether chemical abortion drug safeguards need to be reinstated. The upcoming hearing for FDA versus Alliance for Hippocratic Medicine follows the recent Fifth Circuit Court ruling, which decided certain chemical abortion drug protections should be restored. That decision was quickly appealed by the Biden administration's Justice Department and the drug manufacturer, Dinko. Alliance Defending Freedom 
represents the pro-life plaintiffs in the case. The four national medical associations and four individual doctors are suing the FDA after treating women they say have been harmed by the chemical abortion drugs. And the FDA has always recognized that abortion, uh, emergency room doctors are going to be a big part of the equation because they've recognized that upwards of 5% of women will need to go to the emergency room. And then the FDA has absolved the abortionists from ever having to take care of women for complications after taking these drugs. Our doctors have finally said this, enough is enough. We've been trying to engage the FDA in a meaningful conversation for the last two decades to no avail. It's now the time, it's now it's time for the courts to intervene and to step in and hold the FDA accountable. Dr. Christina Francis, CEO of the American Association of Pro-Life OBGYNs is one of those very doctors. Well, you know, as a as a plaintiff in that case, um, I am thankful that that our our land's highest court is going to hear the very strong arguments about how the FDA has been endangering the lives of women and girls who are taking these drugs in very dangerous ways because of how they've rubber stamped um, removal of many safeguards over the use of these drugs. This is continuing coverage of the March for Life, live from Washington, D.C., on EWTN Radio and Television. Stone, which is at the center of this case, works by cutting off necessary nutrients for an unborn baby's survival, essentially starving the child to death. It's the first pill in the two-pill chemical abortion regimen. Several medical safeguards for mifepristone were struck down in 2016. Those protections included prohibiting the drugs being sent through the mail, requiring a certain number of in-office doctor visits, and limiting the window of time in a pregnancy chemical abortion drugs could be taken. Dr. George Delgado, a Another one of the pro-life plaintiffs has been concerned with the rise of the abortion pills, which have only become more accessible with fewer safeguards in place. As we see that over the last several years, the, the percentage of medication abortions or, or the abortion pill has increased to now 50 percent or more abortions are medical abortions. The Biden White House is welcoming the Supreme Court intervention, saying in a statement, quote, the administration will continue to stand by FDA's independent approval and regulation of mifepristone as safe and effective. Meanwhile, the legal group representing the pro-life plaintiffs says it's looking forward to presenting the case this year after two courts have already sided with them. This is a significant case because women's health is in jeopardy because in particular what the Biden administration did when an authorized mail-order chemical abortion, where now the doctor has been removed from the equation, a woman is not screened before or after she takes drugs that essentially induce labor and delivery in her home, in a dorm room, or in a parent's uh, house without any medical supervision, without any ma- care or management of this process. So it's important that now we have the nation watching and the U.S. Supreme Court to hold accountable the FDA for its illegal actions. While oral arguments for the case have not yet been scheduled, the Supreme Court's decision is expected by this summer. And when that decision comes out this summer, it'll come in the midst of a contentious presidential election year. We'll actually be joined by one of those pro-life plaintiffs in this Supreme Court case. She'll be here in about an hour, Dr. Our coverage of the March for Life, live from Washington, D.C., continues on EWTN Radio and Television. Well, hello. Great to see you on this chilly, snowy, but beautiful day here in the nation's capital. The March for Life Raising Spirits giving people hope and so encouraging to see and really uh, warming ha- warming hearts as well, I should say. Now, here at the White House, which I cover every day, the Biden administration is all about what they call reproductive 
freedoms, their words. And leading the charge is Vice President Kamala Harris. Now, in fact, in just a few days from now, Vice President Harris will kick off what they refer to as the Fight for Our Freedoms, Reproductive Freedoms Tour, end quote. The White House says the tour is to, quote, continue fighting back against extremist attacks throughout America. First stop, Waukesha, Wisconsin, January 22nd, which is the anniversary of Roe v. Wade. Now, Wisconsin is a key battleground state, of course. In the last several months, the vice president has been hitting the road in multiple states to rally support for abortion. Here's what she said in Des Moines, Iowa, last year at Drake University. The court took away the freedom and the right of people to make decisions about their own body. Congress can put it back by codifying Roe v. Wade, which means putting back into law the protections of Roe v. Wade. And Joe Biden will sign it. And Joe Biden will sign it. Joe Biden, of course, her boss, the nation's second Catholic president, routinely goes to mass, often brings up his faith in public, but he, of course, is a huge supporter of abortion that obviously defies preeminent church teaching on protecting the unborn. From now until Election Day, the White House campaign playbook is clear cut. Just earlier today, in fact, the Biden campaign said, quote, November 24 will determine the fate of women's reproductive rights, end quote. They go on to say the next 10 months up until the election, they will highlight what they call Donald Trump's abortion bans and remind voters what's at stake. And so that's a summary of what's going on here at the White House. And we'll send it back to you. And by the way, uh, keep up the fantastic work out there. Guys doing a great job. You as well. Thanks, always, a, I know, always a great job. We right love there. him. Always. You know, when it comes to the race for the White House, though, the question is, where do the candidates stand when it comes to abortion? That's right. We have a recent sampling of comments from both the Democrats and Republicans. Monse Alvarado reports. As expected, the issue of abortion does look like it will loom large in the presidential election this November. With the Democrats already campaigning hard, the vice president touring the country as the face of the party's abortion messaging. The highest court in our land, the United States Supreme Court, the court of Thurgood and RBG, took a constitutional right that had been recognized from the people of America, from the women of America. President Joe Biden making these comments on the anniversary of the Dobbs decision, the case that overturned the federal right to abortion. That we'd fight, we'd fight to restore these protections of Roe v. Wade and make it the law of the land once again, and we're going to do that. Though the three remaining Republican presidential candidates offer pro-life advocates their support, their messaging is not identical. At his campaign rallies, former President Donald Trump takes credit for the overturning of Roe v. Wade, but says he does support exceptions for rape, incest, and the life of the mother. He is also on the record calling six-week heartbeat laws terrible. And last week, he said, we do have to win elections and, quote, there has to be a little bit of a concession one way or the other. The same evening last week in their debate on CNN, both Ron DeSantis and Nikki Haley said they were unapologetically pro-life. But they said their own Republican Party needed to do more.
Republicans need to do a better job of, of lifting up folks um, who are having children. It's very difficult to raise kids in this environment. You need to help with medical care. You need to help with affordability, and we need to help with education choice. You got to be pro-life for the whole life, and you got to have some compassion for what is going on in this Thank country. You, Governor. I have said over and over again, the Democrats put fear in women on abortion and Republicans have used judgment. This is too personal of an issue to put fear or judgment. Our goal should be how do we save as many babies as possible and support as many moms as possible. That's what we're going to focus on doing. We're not going to demonize this issue anymore. We're not going to play politics with this issue anymore. We're going to treat it like the respectful issue that it is. For pro-life voters who plan to cast a Republican ballot, these three Republicans with different takes on abortion policy appear to be the choice. For the 21 million pro-life Democrats in the U.S., Kristen Day, executive director of Democrats for Life of America, says, To secure victory, Democrats must expand our coalition and engage with these populations who are more reticent to the pro-abortion rhetoric that has dominated Democratic politics for the past 15 years. Democrats must reevaluate their approach to pro-life voters and not isolate a substantial portion of our base. Monse Alvarado, EWTN News. On Capitol Hill, both sides are working on legislation to help take care of children and families. And let's go back out to Capitol Hill correspondent Eric Rosales, who has more on that. Eric. Yes, hello. Yes, there are a number of bipartisan bills that are in the works that uh, would help actually families and children, especially those of the lower income, one of which is to bring back the child tax credit that expired back in 2021. Congressional lawmakers are currently in the works of trying to work out a tentative deal on that, and uh, that would be able to ex revive President Biden's expanded tax credit for lower income families in exchange for tax incentives that favor business. Chairs of the Ways Means Committee, uh, Congressman uh, Jason Smith and Senate Finance Committee Chair Ron Wyden have briefed their colleagues over the roughly $80 billion bill, half of which would go to the child tax credit program. Now, earlier I spoke with Senator Wyden about the progress. Good progress um, being made. We've got a, a clear uh, lodestar here, which is to get the biggest cut in child poverty possible to help as many families as possible. We've got a priority and that is to get this done by January 29th and make sure that folks, particularly these working families that are really hurting, can, uh, can get uh, these breaks on their taxes they're filing. This would definitely help out families, a lot of families out there. According to uh, some of the tax writers, uh, it would be able to help out some families with $3,600 annually and be able to help some 16 million kids and put some 400,000 children who are currently above the poverty level, help them get above that poverty level. Now, the bill is still currently being written out, and as of right now, it's still getting support from both sides, but as you heard, progress is being made on this, and it's all about helping out low-income families be able to uh, continue uh, their work and, and be able to uh, help, help them to be able to survive out there. As we know right now with inflation the way that it is, a lot of families are hurting, so this child tax credit would definitely help out a lot of the kids. Back to you in the studio.
Well, thank you so much, Eric. And we're joined now in the studio by Leslie Ford. She is a fellow at the American Enterprise Institute Center on Opportunity and Social Mobility. Leslie, thanks for joining us in studio today. Thank you so much for having me. Of course. We just heard from Eric out on Capitol Hill about child tax credits. And that yeah. kind of leads us to a broader discussion about the policies that are in place and the policies that are needed mm -hmm. to come along women who need support. Talk to me about what you're working on in that vein. Yeah, I think it's so important to really support mothers. So we know that when mothers are facing abortion, about 86% of them are unmarried. Mm -hmm. And a lot of these women are facing poverty. They're dependent on social programs when they're in that first year of their child's life. And that makes a lot of sense. But what we learned in the 90s is that there are a couple ways for us to encourage women, especially single mothers, to have a working member in the home. Mm -hmm. And tax credits are one of those ways. There are two primary tax credits, the EITC, it's called the Earned Income Tax Credit. And then there is the CTC, the, the Child Tax Credit. Um, and those are on debate right now up at the Ways and Means Committee on the House side. But the most important thing is that these uh, tax credits, they're tied to work. Mm -hmm. So that if you're a low-income woman, you're making 20, 30 grand a year, or the family's making 20 or 30 grand a year, mm -hmm. these tax credits, they come alongside that income and they really help raise you above the poverty level. But the most important thing that they do is they reward work. And so it's very important that they reward that work so that that family can move out of poverty long-term. Mm -hmm. So they're an important piece and work is an important piece of them. Yeah. We were talking earlier, I mentioned, um, you know, some states have some creative paid leave programs, yeah. uh, but one of the things you emphasize is the women that are low income are really the ones who kind of suffer. What's being done in the way of maternity leave uh, to help these women? Yeah, I think anyone who's had a kid, I mean, I have three children myself, you know how important those early months are yeah. to being with your child, to maintaining that bond, to protecting that child. Of course. So I think all of us want every mother to have that opportunity to stay with their child. And a lot of mothers who are low income, who are unmarried, they turn to our safety net programs during that time. About a third of mothers say they're gonna leave the workforce entirely and depend on the safety net. So that's another reason why maternity leave, paid family leave is an important thing for policymakers to look at when we're trying to help these mothers feel like they're supported. Now, when we look at the employment effects, if you're asking an employer to say, hey, you're on the hook, for covering this mother's three months out of the workforce entirely. Some economists have said that makes them slightly less likely to hire women. Mm -hmm. So it's an important caveat as we consider. Yeah. But at the end of the day, when we're looking at a mom who's making 20 to 60 grand, who's a waitress, who an employer might consider firing if she leaves the workforce, mm -hmm. that's the person we really need to focus our policy in on. How do we, as a society, even as a government, come alongside that woman and provide her the means to be attached to her child? So there are a couple different policy solutions out there, but it's really zeroing in on those women that we need to focus on. Yeah. Leslie, how do you think, um, you know, we can have these conversations with businesses, with corporations, and kind of convince them this is something that needs to be done, and it's yeah. a benefit not just for the mother, but for them as an employer as well. Yeah. yeah. So it has been increasing in the last 20 years, and about a third of corporations of employers have come alongside and they said, you know what, it is really important to have this feminine perspective in the workplace. I don't want to lose out on all these important workers when they get to 
having children. And so they've extended those benefits. You know, if you're at a law firm, it's five months now. So a lot of employers have come to the table here. But it's even more important for the employer to have some sort of incentive mm -hmm. to come alongside these women and say, you're an employer. You're an important asset to this company. I don't want to lose you. Mm, interesting. And as we're having this conversation about all these different economic policies, I I'm thinking of that woman who finds herself pregnant, isn't sure what to do, mm -hmm. kind of weighing out her options. What sort of parameters are in place to make sure women know that these policies exist? Mm -hmm. So this has kind of been the struggle for the last 100 years in safety net policy. When we really look at a single woman who's in her early 20s, and maybe she didn't graduate from high school, and she doesn't have a full-time job, that's the woman we really need to message that there is a safety net available for you. We're always focused in on that woman. There's Medicaid, which is healthcare coverage. There's food stamps, which is we're gonna get you all the food you need. We have housing programs. We have help you get pay for your energy bill programs. There are 80 different safety net programs. We spend about a trillion dollars a year on it. Mm -hmm. Now, is it perfect? No. <laughs> it can definitely do better. It's hard for a woman who's unmarried to navigate all that. Sure. So I think the focus really should be to make it easier for her to come into the safety net, and most importantly, to exit the safety net. Mm. And the couple ways she can do that is by focusing on the success, success oh, excuse me, success <laughs> sequence as we call it, yeah. which is, finishing high school, uh, getting a full-time job, and if she can, marrying the biological father. Mm -hmm. Now, we can't always do that, but if she does that, it lowers her chance of remaining in poverty from about 77% to about 20%. Mm -hmm. So it's really important that we have the safety net there for her, but she's able to rise out of it. Yeah, great point. Well, Leslie, thank you so much for joining us here, and happy March for Life Day. Oh, yeah. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, Thanks so course. much for coming on. We appreciate it. All right, well, there are a couple of other policies at the state level that can help moms say yes to life when they feel like, you know, they're not in a position to be mothers to their children. Roselle Regis tells us about safe haven laws. Meet Porter. He's 12 years old. He's super active, plays sports, chess club, Boy Scouts. 12 years ago, Porter became an unexpected blessing for the Olson family. Nicole Olson and her husband Michael had their first son, Paul, but they were longing for another child. Well, my husband and I were, you know, actively trying to get pregnant and it just wasn't working. We reached out to some adoption agencies. After years of waiting, a phone call changed their life. They were going to have a baby that same day. And one day we just got a call that there was a baby and that the baby had been already born. All of the things that happens at once. So I remember we went to Target, we had four carts and we're just putting everything in, you know, just getting ready for baby to come home. That baby is Porter. Porter's birth mother placed him in a baby box at a hospital through what's called safe haven laws. Safe haven laws allow mothers to surrender their baby in designated locations shortly after giving birth without fear of being charged with a crime. My oldest son, Paul, prayed to have a baby brother. We were up to either one, but he was so happy that he got his brother. Olson explains there were a lot of unknowns, such as when or where the baby was born, the baby's ethnicity, details of parents or any medical history. However, she takes comfort in knowing that this baby was saved by his birth mother and was placed in their loving home. The Olson family is now complete with baby Porter. I really wanted to connect with the birth mom. I wanted to say, I'm going to love your child forever. 
you know, you have blessed us. You made a beautiful decision. That's the bravest thing I could ever imagine. Every state has a safe haven law, but laws vary from state to state. Safe haven laws drew national attention after two U.S. Supreme Court justices cited these laws as an alternative to abortion during oral arguments in the case Dobbs v. Jackson Women's Health Organization. As a result, the National Safe Haven Alliance saw an uptick of people calling for more information. When the Dobbs decision actually came out, the, that month we had a 300% increase in calls. And then after that, we kind of, you know, calmed down a little bit and things have settled right around that. But we are definitely seeing an increased call volume, I think, because there's been awareness brought to Safe Haven. Heather Berner is the executive director of the National Safe Haven Alliance. The organization supports parents facing unplanned pregnancies by promoting safe haven laws and providing necessary resources. It runs a 24-7 crisis helpline where a trained crisis response team made of social workers and nurses can help talk callers through different options and work towards a plan that best fits the caller. When they reach out and connect, we can often identify where is this crisis. The crisis is often not the baby. The crisis is their life. What's happening? What circumstances surrounded this? More than 115 babies were saved last year. And we are looking at approximately 40 to 42 babies that I know of this year. According to the organization, about 4,400 babies have been saved since the first law took effect in 1999. There's also been a recent push to expand safe haven laws in several states. One example is Virginia, where the state legislature passed four bills to extend the 14-day surrender period to up to 30 days and allow for infants to be surrendered to either emergency medical services personnel or a newborn safety box staffed by